Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. Would you turn in your Bibles please to John, 1 John. There are three little epistles right towards the latter part of the scriptures. If you are newer to the Jesus story or you just visited with friends this morning, uh, please don't feel awkward that you don't know where it is in the scriptures. I think it'll appear on the screen behind me. But I want to take you to a portion of text. We'll pray, we'll frame the story a little bit, and then we'll hone in on a few verses. But it's a five-chapter book that is honestly exquisite in emotion, in poetry, in literacy, in authorship. It's one worth meditating and reflecting on. I was in London recently, and there's a new convert out of Buddhism who asked us the question, why don't Christians meditate more? And there wasn't a finger of accusation. It was a heart of reflection. Surely, if he who loves us is so mesmerizing, why would we not want to spend more time quiet in his presence? And I think John, who we will read of, read about, uh, understood that. So why don't you grab your scriptures? One John, we'll pick up in the second chapter, and um, I think we'll just read from verse 7. We may come back to the earlier part. Beloved, I'm writing to you, the old, some of the other translations say, my friends. It's a very warm, it's a very affectionate book. I'm writing to you, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The commandment is the word that you have heard at the same time. It is a new commandment that I'm giving to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides a great word. I think it appears 16 times in this little book. It's a great antiquitous word. It's a word of intimacy. It's, it's being in the cleft. It's like, uh, I, don't, I don't know much about vines, but I know that they, they cut the, 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 the branch in and, and the, it abides. It gets joined to. It gets tied in with. And he says, we are abiding in the vine. We are being cut and shafted into and tied to. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and who walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven in his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. You have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires or lusts, of the flesh. Lust is a stronger old English word. The lust of the flesh, it drives me. I crave it. I want more of it. It pushes me and prods me on to take what I cannot have. The desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires or lusts. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Holy Spirit, teach us. We are hungry. We long to know but that deep inner knowing that's transformative. Jesus, we celebrated this morning 
the great and wondrous gospel that you've given to us, the proclamation of the good news, that there is freedom, there is liberty, there is life. And Father, our wondrous Father, we thank you today for the recording of the text and for the journey that you've put us on in Jesus' name. John was an old man at the writing of this book. He was probably, probably written around AD 80 to 90. He was the last final member of that band of brothers. And when I, when I read this, particularly the first verse where it says, that which was from the beginning which we have heard and which we have seen and tasted, I, I, I picture him, and I kind of have two pictures in my mind when I read this, but I picture him standing out the mirror in that distant long gaze, dictating to his scribe who records everything he says. And when he says these words, again, forgive my imagination, but I can see an old man pondering every word is important, every idea well-schooled and well-thought-through. And he's writing with the flashing memory of Jesus and of Paul and of Peter and the, the long, lonely years that he spent on the Isle of Patmos, broken-hearted, because just across the causeway, 40,000 of his disciples his sons and daughters spiritually were being slaughtered for their faith. He's an old man. And some theologians say that his writing is a little confusing. It's quite cyclic. He seems to repeat himself. I don't think so. I, I think this is an old man whose mind is clear. And it's his pondering and musings as he speaks and is recorded that he reflects on the things that are most valuable. Arthur Ashe was probably the most successful African-American tennis player. Somewhere in his 30s, he picked up, I believe it was in his 30s, he picked up the HIV virus from a blood transfusion. I remember it startled the world that it came out. Initially, we thought it was because of his, maybe a promiscuous lifestyle that so many of these athletes embrace. But it turned out it wasn't that at all. He had a great wife, he had a great family. But as he was dying, he wrote a letter to his six-year-old daughter. And it's a lengthy letter. If you go and Google it, you'll find it. And it's a very moving letter. He does two things. The first thing he does is he records his story so that she will hear from his mouth the things that happened in his life from his early formative years in the South all the way fighting prejudice all the way through to standing in the pinnacle of a successful uh, athlete, a successful tennis player, and then the trauma and the discovery that he was really dying. The second thing that is interesting in the letter is how he writes to her the gift of the high values that governed his life. I've often wondered, and forgive me, I am a little bit of an incurable romantic, but I've often wondered, what would I write if this was my final letter? What would I say to my wife? What would I say to my kids and now my grandkids? What would I say to the community? And we've handed over two churches. And there's something sublime here. The second picture, the first being him standing, staring out the window, looking in that distant gaze as memory becomes louder than reality. The second is him sitting as if around a chair and it's now more of a family picture. And there are now those who are in three groups as we'll discuss in just a moment. The fathers, and ladies, I'll put mothers in there. The sons, daughters, and the young children. And I think the room is quiet because remember, he was the only living one left who had been with Jesus. He'd been there from the beginning. And remember, there was no social media. 
There was no documentation of Jesus' story and life as we would have it today. And so everyone leaned in because when John speaks, he speaks as one who had been with Jesus. Close. He leaned up against him in that great supper, the final supper as we so affectionately term it. And there was something so intimate about his love for Christ that cultural, sexual, gender practices aside, he could come in close and tight and to Jesus and, and, and smell the, the incredible perfume of Jesus and his humanity that held his divinity. And, and he leans in, and I see this as we just unpackage this just a little bit, but, but I can see him looking at the fathers. His generation has come to an end. Many died decades before. The generation afterwards, the Timothys and Titus and Silas's, they were all dead. Somehow, in the grace and mercy of God, God had given him life that transcended generation so that the next generation, the fourth generation, would be able to hear the first words of someone who had walked with Jesus. And how many of you know the room was going to grow real quiet as he spoke? These were not just passing thoughts of an orator or a scribe that had a few ideas. This was the, the, the articulation of a man who'd been with Jesus who was treasuring every word, every idea, and was giving it as a gift. The more sublime gift than any Christmas gift or birthday gift you could ever have. This was the gift of life that he was dispensing. And what we look at here, dear friends, is we look as, 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 as John leans in and he says, fathers. It's almost as if he cups them in his hand because they're taking his role now. The old man, the dying man, the man that they had to carry into the, the last few years of his preaching life, they would carry him and they would plonk him down expecting a great oration and he would say, beloved, love one another. And he would ask to be taken from the room and they would say, why don't you say something more sublime? And he said, if that were done, it would be enough. But he looks at the fathers in the room and he says to them as he speaks twice to them. He says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. What is he saying? Well, what is John saying as he cups these bearded men who are now aged themselves? They're also probably well into their 60s and 70s and some of them into their 80s. But he's saying two sublime things now. I don't want to be too intense this morning, but this is a very tender piece of scripture for me. Because this is a defining moment, a movement rests, a global gospel movement rests on the ability that John has to pass on the baton to this next generation. Isn't it exquisite, friends, that this three-generational church, each is significant, each has a role to play. John doesn't muscle up on the young or the younger or the old. It's as if he takes each grouping in the church and he says, you, sir, you, madam, are sublimely important. The future depends on you doing your thing. In a younger age, an age where beauty and an age where youthfulness is celebrated, it's almost as if the aged are pushed aside, almost embarrassingly forgotten. Can we push them on the side? Can we just keep them quiet? Because they, they, they say funny things. And then they use old words. And, and they dress in old ways. My son went to a, uh, they call a hollow dance on Friday night. It's when the school year starts, they have a hollow dance at his high school where all the kids come. It's kind of a, a, a big, fun time. 
And so uh, the theme was the, uh, the hip, hip, no, he and his mates wanted to go in a hippie era kind of thing. So Meryl got the big headband and the round sunglasses. And then she tells me, oh, Chris, you know what we did? I found an old shirt of yours. That f- it's beautiful. It's perfect. And I'm like, really? Are my kids now wearing my clothes as vintage clothes? Is that like, uh, that? what else is in your wardrobe, you know? What else can we find here? Well, no, we're going to wear those shoes and that Levi bunny jacket. So my son went in my clothes to a vintage dance. What does it say about me? But you see, in the, in, in the kingdom, the aged aren't forgotten or pushed aside. They're not allowed to be forgotten. They're not allowed to quietly drift into a spiritual retirement of irrelevancy. John looks them in the eyes, and he says, your role is pivotal for two reasons. He says, the first is from the beginning. He says, you've got to tell the story. My opa, which is Afrikaans for my granddad, used to have us on the bed on the farm, and he would tell us, the stories of him growing up. I'm sure they were butchered and exaggerated, but it didn't seem to matter about how the baboon would go into the mealy, into the maize fields, and they would pluck off a corn, stick it under his arm, then, uh, and, yeah, and then he would go to the next one and stick it under his arm and leave this deposit of mealies. And how my grandpa took his penknife one day and, and, and he cut his slit, slit the baboon's throat. And we were like, ooing and eyeing. I'm sure it never happened. <laughs> Truth was irrelevant, it was optional on that bed and the oratory skills of the Afrikaner. But this is what he was referring to, dear friends. He was looking at the old man. He said, I need you to tell the story from the beginning. What does that mean? It, 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 It has different faces to it. Part of it is just to tell people the story of Jesus, the God who robed himself in humanity and allowed himself to reside in the belly of a woman. It is a sublime story. Please don't sentimental sentimentalize it to a Christmas pageant. A 16, 14, 16, 17-year-old girl embedded God inside of her womb in all humility, and Jesus came out of the birth canal with all of those implications because he would experience everything we experience, yet without sin. He says to the fathers, please tell the story from the beginning. Can I add a piece in? Those of you who've been around in victory for a long time, I know what little building you met in back in the day. Will someone please take the antiquity responsibility to tell the victory story? It's a story of God. It's not a Tony Kath story. They have been pivotal and instrumental, and without them, this would not exist. But it's not because of them. It's because of a great God that wanted to create a God story here in the northern part of the city. Fathers, tell the story from the beginning. Let the people know and savor. Let the kids growing up saying ooh and ahs and wows and the heroes and the villains of those who walk in the ways of God or in the ways of darkness. The pulpit, the most profound pulpit, dear friends, is the dining room table. This can never replace the dining room table. Where dads sit their families around and we tell the stories of Jesus. Look how good he is. Look how wonderful he is. Look how important he is. The dining room table is the greatest neglected pulpit in our time. Restaurants have replaced the dining room table and it's tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy because fathers no longer preside an oral God tradition to their children. Fathers! Tell the story from the beginning. It's exquisite. Can you feel the Father's heart here through John? 
And then he says, fathers, not just tell the story from the beginning, but he says, uh, where am I? Because you know him who is from the beginning. And it's interesting, he highlights two pieces of our great God in this text. God is light and God is love. He looks at the fathers, he looks at the mothers and say, please tell the story and please tell God is light and God is love. Now, ladies and gentlemen, do you know how important that is? Because if we only tell God is love, we'll be left to the distorted perception that he just loves everything and he doesn't mind and it's this, this, this soft-wristed, awkward God who just never challenges anyone at any level about anything. We had this sublime conversation around our dining room table. Uh, T, my son, Tian, has a, has a friend. Uh, now, I don't know if it's important. It's fun to me. She's, she's half African-American, half Latina. And they've been friends from when they were this high. They've got this unique relationship, and until recently, Camille could out-wrestle Tion. So when they were small, it didn't matter because they played rugby together. But when it was no longer co-ed, and, and he became a guy, and she's now a woman, they don't wrestle anymore. I don't think he wants to be defeated uh, myself. That's my personal conviction. But we sat around together, and I listened to the, to the two of them, and Meryl and I have this extraordinary conversation about what parental love is like. It was a sublime moment. It was as if the kids were lecturing the parents about how important it is for parents to say no. Wow. Wow. So after dinner, T comes to me and he says, Dad, a whole lot of us are going to the beach on Sunday. One of the volleyball girls, her parents got a home on the beach. Can we go? I said, No. What could he say? You know, he, he could say, oh, dad, you know, it's a, that's fine, dad. I thought that was magnificent. God just set it up for me. Here is the deal. Here is the deal. Please hear me. God is love, God is light are two complementary truths. They're not two separate truths. Because God is love, God pours light into the dark places. Young people, please hear me. And not only young people, as Ashley Madison indicated, by that being hacked. What you do in darkness, God loves too much to keep there. My kids really learned that. I said it to them as a dad. They didn't believe me. And then they crossed the line, and I found out within 24 hours. Someone called me or something happened, and I'd call them in, and they'd look. And I said to them, God loves you too much to let you get away with that. I'm not a tough dad. I'm strong, but I'm not a tough, uncompromising dad, I don't think. But I said, God loves you too much. God is light. He shines into the dark places. He will reveal to me what you're up to, because he loves you too much. God is love, God is light. Fathers, tell that. You with me? He then shifts his attention to the sons. And it's, 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 it's a, for me, a sublime moment, because in this he says these things. How are we doing time-wise, Tone? He says this. He says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. He says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. The word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. It's a sublime shift of conversation. The fathers and mothers are gifted with the responsibility to tell the story from the beginning and to reveal God woven in from the beginning. But to the young men, he says three things. He says, I need you to be strong. 
Now, can I speak with tenderness as a biological father? I mean, yeah, as well as a spiritual father. There is a a loss of adventure. I'm intrigued by why ISIS has gotten traction globally, where young people from all over the world are are doing whatever they can, whatever their illicit visa maneuverings are, to get to go and be part of an adventure that will change the world. You know what Christopher Columbus, Paul Johnson in his book, The Americans, The story of America writes, he said, what Christopher Columbus did, he pandered to two things, to mobilize people to go beyond the edge of the world. They knew by then that the world was not flat, they knew the world was round, except they thought when they go over the the round part of it, how will they sail back up? That was their big sailing uh, uh, question. But he did this, he pandered to their love for gold, number one, and number two, their need for adventure because the older sons got the land, got the business, got the the family gig, but the second and third sons lived miserable lives, feeling very inferior, and he went around the, the, the corridors and the passageways and the alleyways of Spain, and he gathered to himself a group of men who are hungry for gold and hungry for adventure. And ladies and gentlemen, those of us in the church can at times be given for a loss of adventure. That, that, that absence of living a life that has meaning and has purpose. And, he, and, and, and I see John looking into the eyes of these young men, and he said, young men, I need you to be strong. And if I beat a drum, and I think there are a few that I beat, the side product of egalitarianism is insipid men. Unfortunately, the only place we're equal is at the cross, where we're all sinners which means translated into our modern world before the law. But at no other level are we equal. I cannot nurse a baby. I'm not equal to my wife. I cannot carry a baby. Even if I was to become transgender, I could not carry a baby. There is an insipidity that is drifting into young men and women, young men around the world. I love strong, capable women. My wife is, my daughters are, I love it. But it's not at the expense of weak, insipid men. I've had to say, Meryl, you're pandering to Meryl, back off. Her maternal instinct is to protect. Her maternal instinct is to keep from danger. And I've had to say, babe, you've got to let him run. But he's gonna hurt himself, he has to. That's part of life and life's development, ladies and gentlemen. If God, who's the author of perfect love, the father of love, will let me stumble and fall and then pick me up, dust me off, and send me on my adventure again, then it's my obligation as a father to do that to my kids. My daughter preached last Sunday. I love sitting under her ministry. I wasn't there, but I love it if I have opportunity. My other daughter will be leading worship next Sunday when I teach in Perth. I love sitting under their ministry. This is not to shrink or diminish the wow factor of woman, but it is to muscle up, be strong. David said to Solomon, be strong, be a man. That means something in the scriptures. It's not a mantra for a a, a men's ministry with with beers and boxing and tats. It is a scriptural injunction. Be a man. Be strong, be courageous, be adventurous. Lead your family somewhere. 
And he turns to these young men and he says, I need you. The future of the church needs you to be strong. Stand strong. I don't know this family, the man who passed away on uh, this, this past week. So forgive me if I misrepresent the story. But from a man to throw his kid out of danger, danger and himself take the brunt of it, surely that is what the scripture was talking about here. Surely that's what it looks like. Be strong. Overcome the evil one. Overcome the evil one. is I, I, The father, I'm sure, and, and every generation, forgive me, I don't want to tread on awkward terrain here, but every young man wrestles with masturbation. Every young man wrestles with lust. Every young man wrestles with ambition. With the, every young man does. And I can see John with tears streaming down his face, holding the face of these young men one at a time. He says, overcome the evil one. Overcome the evil one. It's much easier than swimming against the current. It's much easier just to turn around and to go with the flow. And young men, it is hard. I understand it. There are times we do want to give up. We want to sleep around. We want to be immoral. We want to just be like everyone. We want to get drunk. I understand that. We have joked at times, can't we just have Christian marijuana? You know? When, 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 when the church just slaps us around, we just want a bit of Christian marijuana. We just want a little bit of legitimate something, something, just to take the edge off. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Be strong and overcome the evil one. Man on man, buddy on buddy, like your forefathers did at Gallipoli when they went arm in arm, buddy on buddy, and they turned those horses flying up that cavern knowing that they were going to be killed, but they went man to man, buddy to buddy, and took the enemy on. An amazing moment of Australian military history. But they never went alone, but they went buddy with buddy. They had been riding on the outback together, the Blue Mountains together, across the plains of South Australia together, and now they looked at each other and they said, come on, mate. And they rode up there believing in each other, believing in their cause, and they got slaughtered for it. Young men, overcome the evil one, the one who resides in murmurings and deceptions and darkness the one who perpetually gnaws at you, who is the one who whispered in Cain's ear so that the writer says, sin is crouching at your door. Waiting. Young man, overcome the evil one. Can I just stay here for a moment? Young man, please hear me. There's so much pornography available. The problem with pornography, if you get into it when you're young, is that you will never have a healthy, intimate walk with your wife. Because they're distorted images in your mind of what it should look like, all of which is a big farce and a big con and made in Simi Valley, two hours north from our house. Momentary pleasure will create a lifetime of distortion. But Chris, I've looked at it. Is there something, is there something that can help me? Oh, I have good news for you. Because my Bible says not only does God forgive me, but he chooses to remember my sin no more. And if he who is eternal and perfect can choose to forget my sin, he can help you forget yours. Yeah. I believe that with all of my heart. If there was no forgetting, 
There is no grace. And if there is no grace, we are no better than anyone else out there that is wrestling with what we are wrestling with. Intimacy in marriage is exquisite. In a monogamous relationship, husband and wife, Meryl and I went on honeymoon, and I won't go too fast to make you awkward or embarrassment, but we knew nothing. By God's divine grace, we were virgins. And it's been a journey of discovery. What's good? What's not good? What can work? What can't work? What's, what's right? What's wrong? I'd rather wrestle with the awkwardness of those things than try to push aside thoughts and imaginations that aren't real. That's not a real thing you saw. It's all set up. Young men, overcome the evil one, the distorter, the deceiver, the liar, the conniver, the murderer, the liar. Overcome him. Why? Because the young ladies deserve it. That beautiful girl who walks down the aisle on the side of her dad or uncle or brother and walks down to the aisle and she looks gorgeous and you weep because you mesmerize that God would be so kind to you, deserves better than getting into a bed and in your mind is rushing a set of endless images that she could never live up to. Overcome the evil one. Your wife deserves better. Little children, because your name, because your sins are forgiven. Little children, because you know the Father. I need to land and then take off to go to Perth. But I need to land with this exquisite little. There are about seven or eight occasions in the scripture where I see John's fatherly face turned towards the littler ones. And he now cups their faces in, in his hands with intimate affection and kindness and love. And I will leave you with just one. It's in the second chapter, and it's from verse 1. I'll read it quickly, and we'll land there. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. I love the first time John addresses the little children. He gives them this incredible gift, this treasure called propitiation. Now, it's a big word we don't use often anymore. In fact, our, our, our pulpits are strangely quietened about such a great idea. What they would have heard goes something like this. The wrath of God has been fully satisfied and turned to favor. The wrath of God has been fully satisfied and turned to favor. It's part of the, why does that song about grace move us so? The tune's fine. The lyrics are great until we get to that explosive moment. How great is that grace? And something inside of us leaps to say, yes, it is exquisitely great. Yeah. Why? Because we intrinsically know what we deserve, dear friends. My boy turned to me the other day and he said, you know, Dad, what's so sad about dating at high school? I said, what is it, boy? He said this. And I thought, dude, whose son are you? Oh, well, I mean, how did you get that great idea is actually what I meant to say. He said this, girls tend to accept the love they think they deserve. I said, can you tell me that again? He looked at me, 
Girls tend to accept the love they think they deserve. He says, Dad, I can't believe it. Their boyfriends cheat on them, lie about them, tell them they're staying at home to study and go surfing. What would let girls accept that? But they accept the love they think they deserve. The wonder of this text, the wrath of God, that's not because God is angry, but because God is a judge. A judge would handle that case of those hit and run people. And there's in all of our hearts a sense in which justice must be done. Because without justice, we live in destructive chaos. The justice or the wrath of God is fully satisfied. The judge leans over the, over the, the, the balustrades of time. And he proclaims, my wrath, my justice has been fully satisfied. I forgive you all of your sins. Ladies and gentlemen, the great evil one's lie is that there are some sins God won't forgive. A man in the church I used to lead fell morally. He's in his 60s. Walked with the Lord for over 30 years. And he could not forgive himself. And I would sit with him, Meryl and I would, she would be weeping, saying, God has forgiven you. She said, there's no way God could forgive me. There's a TV series called Hell on Wheels. I don't know if you get it here. But there's a moment in it in which the pastor's daughter, who now is leading this little church in this front, frontier town, kills them. That's a long story. But she will not accept grace. The governor appeals to her. The people in her community appeal to her. And she says, the only thing I deserve is the noose. See, many people live. The only thing I deserve is the noose. But that's not what this says. Little children. Little children. How great is the love that God has lavished on us, that he propitiates us, that his wrath is fully satisfied and turns to favor. It's an exquisite truth that has to reside with us. If we don't have this truth, we are no different, dear friends, I'm landing, but we are no different from any religion in the world. When you go to the Discovery Channel and you see these Muslims in Pakistan who are walking, whipping their backs, bleeding, hanging themselves in the Philippines by their chest, somehow if I pain enough, the gods will have to forgive me. Or the Nordic tradition, the Vikings, in order to get to Valhalla, I'll have to go through enough trauma and pain down here to warrant. I must die in battle, the men say. Because if I die in battle, I will be accepted into Valhalla. No, this gospel is not how much pain will we go through because it's how much pain he went through. And he says, little children, that's Christianity 101. If you don't get that right, you won't get the rest right. That point is what gets us to lift our hearts in worship. That point is what gets us to kneel before him in communion. That point is what enables a man to love his wife. Parents, I mean children, forgive their parents for the tragedy of a very broken home journey. That point. Little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins, not for ours only, but for the sins of the world.
Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au. 